0: Hope Church. Good morning. What a privilege to worship the Lord and sing with you this morning. Wonderful songs that we got to participate in together today. What a blessing. Um, This morning we're going to continue in our study through the book of Genesis. Um, And this morning we're in Genesis chapter 14. Um, If you have your Bible with us or whether that's in print or electronic or, um, whatever you brought today, but please turn to Genesis chapter 14 and just to give a little bit of a recap from last week, just remember Abraham and lot, um, at this point both have a a lot of, of sheep, (laughs) they're herdsmen. Um, and the area that they're in, um, is not sufficient, you know, for grass and water for all of them, and so um, Abraham's herdsmen are arguing with Lot's herdsmen, and there's conflict. And Abraham says, you know, I don't want there to be conflict between you and me. So I'm going to give you the option. If you go, you know, east, I'm going to go west. If you go west, I'm going to go east, so that we can live together in in peace, you know. And there's a, there's enough land if we spread out. There's enough um, for both of us. So you know, you you make the choice. Um he gives his nephew the choice, even though he was the one in the position of authority. Um he didn't want Lot to say, Well, you know, my, my uncle took advantage of me or he gave me, you know, what was worse. And so he Abraham gives Lot the choice and Lot looks over and, and he sees this very fertile land. It's you know, it's green as can be. And there's he knows there's plenty of grass. Um, for his livestock stock, and that's where the easy money is. There's an opportunity for him to greatly increase his wealth. And so he says, I'm going to go that way. But remember, lot did not consider the spiritual implications. He didn't think about what the people were like in that area and, um, who feared God and who did not, you know, fear God. And so he makes his, his choice based on what looks good to his eyes but it wasn't the spiritual choice um and so he takes that decision and it's going to have some pretty significant consequences as we see here in luke chapter 14. Um, so let's go to the lord in prayer this morning heavenly father we thank you for the privilege to look into your word what a blessing it is to be together Um, lord we give you thanks and praise to have the privilege to be here today we love you and praise you we worship you and thank you in your name jesus amen amen and so it says and it came to pass in the days of Amraphel king of shinar ariot king of eleazar Chedalomer, king of elam and title king of nations that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemabar, king of Zebulun, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the salt sea. And 12 years they served Chedalomar. And in the 13th year, they rebelled. So we get that Chedalomar and his allies have gone in and they've taken over and they control Sodom and Gomorrah and. Um, the surrounding places and for 12 years it's this way and then you know those kings decide hey we think we're strong enough now we think we can fight and and not have to pay tribute um, anymore usually you know these things are financial things (laughs) right they didn't want to see their wealth um, leaving their land and going uh, to the kingdom of another and so they said you know it's time for us um, to, to step up and to fight back. So in the 14th year, Chedalomar, that's verse five, in the 14th year, Chetalomar and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephium in Ashtaroth, Carnaum, the Zurum in Ham, the Emum in Sheva, Caratheum, and the Horites in the mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness, Then they took back and came to in Mishphat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And so here, Chetel isn't just going to stand by and take this because if he allows them not to pay tribute, you know, others aren't going to pay tribute. And so, you know, he's going to go, he's he's going to look um, to collect what he believes is due him and he takes his allies with him. And then in verse eight, it says the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zebulun and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the Valley of Siddim against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amphra, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Eliegezar. Four kings against five. Now the Valley of Siddim." was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their possessions and went away. They also took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, that's his nephew, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. See, so now, from what we've seen, you know, in the, in the choice that Lot made, When he made that choice and said it's going to be better to go over there, he didn't anticipate another king from another place coming over and having control of that territory. See, so what looked like a really great um, investment had a risk involved in it that he was unaware of. You see, he didn't know the whole story, he didn't know everything that was going to happen, but God did. And again, if he had sought wisdom and counsel from God on the front end, he, he would have been wiser have said, well, Abraham, I know the promises God has made to you and you're going to be protected no matter where you go. Why don't you go over to where the people are more ungodly? And I'll go over here to the people that are less ungodly, still ungodly, but not to the same extent. And so now he's in a situation where he's been kidnapped. He's been taken off as a captive, um, as a casualty of war. It's a war he's not in. You don't see lot going out to fight, but yet the people there don't care. They're like, we got a, we got a prisoner. You know, he's going to be sold um, into slavery or be someone's slave and they've taken all of his goods all the wealth that he you know had acquired in that time now is in the hands of another now fortunately for lot he's got good old uncle abraham on his side and so let's read in verse 13 then one who had escaped And came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terremoth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Anar. And they were allies with Abram. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his three hundred and eighteen trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against him by night. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. So um, his brother's son brought back Lot with him. And this is a really interesting paragraph because... When we think of Abraham, at least when I think of Abraham, one of my first thoughts is not, um, you know, Abraham the warrior. You know, I think Abraham, the one called out by God, um, you know, the one who has great faith as is displayed in his obedience to God concerning his son, um, Isaac, the one who makes some mistakes, you know, along the way, the one who's the herdsman, but how often do we think about Abraham being a warrior? Because notice what it says there, it says he has 318 servants that were born into his own house, you know, that were trained. So these, um, you know, it's not, and remember 318 might sound like a lot to us, like that's a lot of people for somebody to have, you know, on their property, right? That are all trained, in how to use, you know, uh, weapons. Those are bows and arrows. Those are swords. Those are spears. You know, and, and but to imagine, you know, these these that grew up, you know, in in Abraham's um, household, you know, you can just imagine them, you know, as part of their weekly routine or daily. I don't know if it was daily or weekly or how they'd set up their training, but part of their regular life. Was to be trained for battle. Why is that? Well, because there's people who would want to come along and say, we're just going to take all your possessions and we'll take your family and, you know, we'll kill you. And so he had a, um, a certain amount of, of protection, you know, with, with him. And so this is what he does. And so it says he armed them. He says, you know, basically, okay, man, it's time, it's time to go. You know, it's time now for us to put this training to use. And so they go and he's got a couple of friends from the area that go along with them and he's successful. You know, it's, it's interesting because, um, You know, if you read a story like Gideon, there's a, there's a lot that goes into the story to remind us that it was God who won the victory because of this, you know, very small group of people defeating this, you know, massive number of people. And we see, it you know, we recognize that because it's just told very explicitly to us when you read a story like Gideon and his victory over the Midianites, but it was really the Lord that had done it in this case as well. You know, Abraham has, you know, what do we call like a a special ops elite type, you know, force that isn't small, that is, that is small in number, but is well trained. At the same time, he's going against armies. And obviously the Lord is with him in what he does. And so you have this combination of Abraham being well prepared, Abraham having courage and being bold to do what he feels like he should do in the situation and using good strategy. You see, he attacks at night where the enemy can't see how many are coming and he comes from two different places. So it looks like a large number of people are coming, you know, to attack which really not a large number of people. So he is wise in all the strategic things that he does And yet the primary element is that God has promised him to protect him and that God is, you know, with him. There's a lesson there for us as well, right? Just because we have certain promises in Jesus that he will never leave us or forsake us. Or we're promised an eternal home with him. you know, we don't just say, well, you know, we're thankful for that and so we're not going to do anything because you see Abraham was in a in a physical battle but we are in a spiritual battle. And so while we have the promises of God and why it is God who delivers us and God who sees us through, we still have a responsibility to be well prepared and to use good tactics. If you read Ephesians chapter 6, you'll see about the you know followers of Jesus being told to put on the full armor of God. Why do you need to put on the full armor of God? Well, because you're in, you're in a battle, you're in a war. You, it's not a war that you were, that you initiated or that you wanted to fight, but nevertheless, it is present. It is there because you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to be in a battle. It's like, well, you are, <laughs> you know, lot didn't want you know his city attacked and to be taken off as a captive well he was Abraham didn't want to receive a message saying well your, you know your 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 nephew has been taken captive in in battle and you know he wasn't like oh boy this is great news now I get to go and use our you know, you know my little uh, militia here no uh, but he had to you know he did what he had to do. So the same thing is true for us. We are in a spiritual battle. And if you do not prepare for the battle, then you're likely to be wounded in battle. And there's you know and i'm not saying that if you prepare you won't be wounded because certainly you will be but there's different types of wounds there's wounds because you you are you're hurt by the brokenness that you see around you when you see people fall in battle that shouldn't fall in battle you know that is painful you know and that hurts and you and we receive some wounds in that way that's one way to receive wounds but there's a but there but this other way that i'm talking about Specifically, this morning comes from an intentional lack of being prepared, and and you might say, "Well, wait, wait a second. What do you mean about intentional act of not being prepared?" You see, because. When, when we get wounded in a battle where we fall you see we, we want it to be somebody else's fault right <laughs> we don't we don't like the idea of it's our of, of having personal responsibility there but when I say we intended an intentional failure, an intentional failure is really the, just this simple not putting arm, on the armor of God is intending to fail. Do we understand that this morning? If we don't put on the armor of God, then we have set ourselves up intentionally to fail. We can't say, well, there was no intention. Well, there was, there was an intention to be unprepared. And so we need to be mindful of that and to be well-prepared as in this case. Abraham was now notice in verse 16 it says Abraham brought back all the goods and also brought back you know Lot and his goods as well as all the women and the people in verse 17 and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Cheva that is the king's valley after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer. And the kings who were with him. So, you know, perhaps they, these others participated in a bit as well as Abraham had turned the tide of things. But then we, we come across this almost out of the blue in verse 18. And this is one of these passages of scripture. This is one of those things in Genesis that is so awesome to see, and then you know you're going to have Melchizedek again in in Psalms, and then you know intensely, heavily um, in the Book of Hebrews. Okay, and so again, this is one of those things where seeing this, the you know knowing the the account in Genesis is really helpful for our understanding as we move forward throughout the Scriptures. Throughout the scripture, it says in verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. And just in the English there, it might be a little bit um it leave you a little bit confused about who gives who the tithe, but it's it's Abraham giving the tithe to Melchizedek. So we're going to come back to this. We're going to finish Verses 21 through 23, and then we're going to come back to Melchizedek and talk about that a little bit more this morning. It says, now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God, most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So again, the king of Sodom is grateful, is thankful for what has happened, says, you know, you take the, you take the goods, let me take the people back. But Abram says no. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to leave an opportunity for someone who is not a follower of God to be able to take credit, you know, for the things that God is doing in his life. Abraham does what is fair. For the men who fought with him and said, you know, let them just have their food, right? Because they were hungry after all that fighting. Um, and that his three friends who were not part of his household, that they would have, you know, their portion. That they would receive something for what they had done, um, for their valor in the battle. But then we go back to Melchizedek and we need to think about this in a little bit more. He's king of Salem. And this is the place that we know better as Jerusalem. So he is king of Salem before long, 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 long before, you know, King David ever comes onto the scene. But you know, we're not told his genealogy. We're just told his name, we're told his name, we're told where he's from, and we are told that he is priest of the most high God. We're given those key pieces of information and then we see what he does as he brings Bread and wine for Abraham, those with him, and he receives a tenth, which is interesting because before it's kind. Of, if, I, if I'm reading the story correctly, it's like before Abraham gives Sodom everything, the king of Sodom everything of his back, You know, it was taking the battle first. He he takes a tenth of it, he takes a tithe of it, and he gives it to. Melchizedek. We don't see anybody, you don't see the king of Sodom or anybody else complaining about that. Apparently that was the obvious thing to do in the situation. And then King David writes in Psalm 110, he says, the Lord said to my Lord. So what King David is saying there is he's not the highest. Jesus actually uses this passage in Matthew chapter 22, talking to the religious leaders about who is, who is David referring to. And ultimately he's referring to the Messiah, the one who would come, who would sit on the throne of King David, but who would be so much higher and greater. And so he says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies, till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, full in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers. I love that. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, why does he say the Lord has sworn and will not relent? You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Notice he doesn't say, in the order of Levi or Aaron in the Levitical tribe of the Old Testament law, those who have been trusted with that. But instead, he goes way back before the law was ever given and says he's going to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which we see back in Genesis chapter 14. That's pretty awesome, it's pretty amazing. And then the author of Hebrews um, spends a good bit of the book on Melchizedek, and you know we have it in five, chapters five and chapter six, and then even more in chapter seven. And so we're gonna read some from chapter seven of the book of Hebrews this morning. It says this, for this Melchizedek, Hebrews seven, verse one, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest. Continually. So we see Melchizedek is a type or an Old Testament picture of Christ. Melchizedek, the name, as Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us, the name means king of righteousness. So the king of righteousness from And he's the king of righteousness and he's the king of Salem, meaning he's the king of peace. So he's the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. We understand that like Jesus ultimately is the king of justice and he's the king of peace. Now we have to understand the order in the future that that's going to come. You know, there's going to be justice and then there's going to be peace. And he sets out, here He again, he talks about Abraham gave a 10th part of all. And he starts to set out that the priesthood, that the, this order of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood through the order of Levi. And so he says this in verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a 10th. Of the spoils and indeed those who are the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from their brethren though they have come from the loins of Abraham but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises now beyond all contradiction the lesser is blessed by the better here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of which it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So, so what's being said here? The one who receives the tithes is greater than the one who gives them? So he's, the author of Hebrews here is arguing that Melchizedek, think how great he was that even, even Abraham who was called by God, who was promised that in his seed, all the, you know, the families of the earth would be blessed, that even this Abraham pays Melchizedek the tithe, gives him a tenth. And in a, in a certain way, because Abraham's descendants and Levi is not on the scene yet, but we have the word here, loins, that even in his loins, Levi is paying the tithe to Melchizedek. So Abraham is, is representative of that line and saying basically all in that line Are um, recognizing the greatness of Melchizedek. Now I'm going to make one one really quick note. Actually, I'm not. We're just going to move right forward. It says, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, For under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord from Judah of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood and yet it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment but according to the power of an endless life for he testifies you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek let's stop there for a minute at the end of verse 17. And again, we see this contrast. So we're, what we have is, the, you know, the order of Melchizedek, and then ultimately Jesus. And then you have this other order that is, um, you know, the tribe of Levi. It's Aaron and all of his, you know, descendants down the line. But what the argument is, you know, two things. One is that J- Jesus comes from an order A different order than Levi because he's from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. So how could he, he's answering the question, how could Jesus be our great high priest coming from the tribe of Judah and not of the tribe of Levi? Well, there's another order. And if there's another order, there also has to be a different law. We all have to understand something very clearly this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are not under the law of Moses. You're in the new covenant. You're under it. You're in a new covenant. As Moses gave, you know, God gave the law through Moses of the old covenant, the old law. God gives the new covenant through his son, Jesus Christ. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you are not under the law of Moses. You are under the new covenant. Now, some people are going to take that and go, oh, well, that means I get to do, you know, all these things that are prohibited in the, in the old covenant. Well, not really. Because the moral and ethical laws have not changed. Just in fact, you've been called to a higher standard of them. So actually you have a higher standard to follow, not a lower standard. But there's a difference. You see, in the old law did not have power in it to help you to do what was right. It told you what was right and was wrong and it condemned you when you did wrong, but it did not give you the power to do what was right. In the New Covenant, you know what is right and what is wrong, and you receive power through the Holy Spirit to actually do what is right. So there is a huge difference. Verse 18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. That's back to Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become the surety or he's become the guarantee of a better covenant. And also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. We get this other difference. You see, you had all the descendants of Aaron and one after one, they would die and you would need another but Jesus being risen from the dead is a priest continuously forever. So we have another advantage of the priesthood according to the line of Melchizedek versus the priesthood according to the line of Aaron. 25, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and who has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those sacrifice as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the peoples, for he this he did once for all. When he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. I say, here we, here we have another difference. You see, the priests, when they offered the sacrifice, they had to offer fac- sacrifice first for their, for their own sins. Jesus didn't have to do that because he was sinless, was perfection. And then the priest would have to keep on making the sacrifices day after day after day. What Jesus did at the cross, the sacrifice of himself, as he is both the high priest, the one who offers The sacrifice he offered up himself. And he is the perfect lamb of God. He is the sacrifice. He did so once. At one point, one moment in eternity, he made a once and for all sacrifice that was sufficient For our sins and not for ours only, but also that of the whole world. As the Apostle John reminds us. Now I want to be um, very clear in how we say this. Jesus said, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's an um, exclusive claim. What does that mean, an exclusive claim? means... It excludes all other claims. When Jesus says that he is the way, the truth and the life, it excludes any other ways, truths or lives. And it's been but it's been rightly said, it's been rightly said that it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth. You get that? It's the most inclusive exclusive truth. Because Jesus died once for the sins of all, so any who call on his name, as the scripture says, shall be saved. You see, it's it is the most inclusive Exclusive truth, because it does not exclude anyone based on their ethnicity, does not exclude anyone based on their past, does not exclude anyone based on their language, does not exclude anyone based on their economic status, does not exclude anyone based on academic ability or physical prowess or lack thereof. Does not exclude anyone on any of these things that humans are always excluding each other about. What it comes down to is the humbleness of the, of the human heart to bow before the King and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Please save me. I surrender myself to you. You see, then Jesus is gonna save that person, but then he's not just gonna save that person and leave them as they are in their sin. You know, he saves them, forgives them, gives them power, and then pulls them out. As we sang earlier, we were once those you know, familiar with the chains and the bonds as we were slaves of sin. You see, and we need to be real careful that we're not looking down on people who are trapped in sin. Because where would you and I be without Jesus? You and I would be trapped in sin. You see, it's not because of us or our goodness or greatness or our, you know, moral superiority or intellectual prowess or anything like that. No, we were beggars. We were slaves to sin. We were in bondage and we've been freed. And that same freedom that we have received, we desire to share with others. And that is our call. As we finish up the message this morning. Just want to read the first six verses of Hebrews 8. It says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. So he already tells you what the main point is. All right. He tells you, hey, pay attention. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of. Of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer for if he were on earth he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he, that's Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. It's the Sunday before Thanksgiving. I mean, as we read, we read in Genesis 14 and we all know that we were in that position of lot in need of rescue. We were all in bondage and in chains and it's the Lord who has saved us. You know, we can think, yes, 2020 has been a difficult year for many people. It's been hard. But if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you still have so much to be thankful for. Mostly because of Jesus, and though for many of us 2020 has been a difficult year, even if it got so much worse, if we were in a war zone, if there's famine, natural disaster, the economy gets really, really bad, if there's more sickness and more disease, if things, you know, we're hopeful things will get better, but if things didn't get better, if they got 10 times worse, if they got a hundred times worse, or a thousand times worse, our hearts would still have reason to give thanks. Because of what Jesus has done for us At the cross. You see, we need to have it firm in our mind. Lord, we hope and we pray it'll get better, but if it gets ten times worse, I'm still gonna give thanks and praise your holy name. Lord, if it gets a hundred times worse, I'm still there. I'm still gonna praise your holy name. Doesn't matter how bad it gets, I will still be thankful because of Jesus, what you have done for me. And I think we need to remind ourselves from that time to time. And as we are living a world and we can get caught up in it too, where everything is bad and everybody's complaining about everything, we are the people who should still have joy in our hearts because we have a great savior and a great king. We're in a wonderful position because of Jesus. Jesus is to be exalted and praised And as melchizedek brought bread and wine to abraham so jesus in the night he was betrayed took the bread and cup and gave it to his disciples y'all catch that connection there that bread and wine that consistent theme in the scripture this bread and cup are symbols of our communion, our fellowship with the Lord, the bread representative of our unity in him, in his body, that we are one church. We are part and parcel together as we take of that one bread, as the book of Corinthians tells us. Now, because of the safety concerns and because of the pandemic, we have gone away from our one loaf and we have all these little individually wrapped Deals, And I believe the Lord's okay with us doing that um, in the circumstances, but even in your mind, as you take it, remember, you're not taking it in isolation by yourself. You take it in community, in communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with communion of all those who call on his name and are part of the family of God in this local church and even around the world. And we take the cup that represents his precious blood, the precious blood of our dear Savior. And so this morning, you and I are invited to give thanks. Because we have been rescued. And we have so much to be thankful for. If you know Jesus this morning, you know that's true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We give our thanks to you, dear God, because we were in a far worse bondage than lot. We we're in bondage for our own sins that we had committed against you. We are thankful, we thankful for the sacrifice made on our behalf that, Father, you sent your only begotten, Jesus, your son, to the cross, be both priest and sacrifice and we thank you and praise you dear god for all you have done for us as we take the bread and cup this morning we pray that you would first uh, examine our hearts show us anything we need to confess to you and then help us to take it with joy and with thanksgiving this morning for your glory and honor dear jesus your precious name amen